Good morning. My name is Erin, and I am a part of the East Charlotte community group. Hey. <laughs> All right. Today's scripture comes from Exodus 2, 11 through 15, Exodus 2, 23 through 25, and Exodus 3, 1 through 15. Many years later, when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people, the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. During his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure no one was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and hid the body in the sand. The next day, when Moses went out to visit his people again, he saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend? Moses said to the one who started the fight. The man replied, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill us? Or, excuse me, are you going to kill me as you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened, and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a wall, a well. Years passed, and the king of Egypt died, but the Israelites continued to groan under the burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He looked down on the people of Israel and knew it was time to act. One day, Moses was tending the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came into Sinai, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to himself. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called him from the middle of the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Do not come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you are standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Israel into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. But Moses protested to God, Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you, and this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, If I go to the people of Israel and tell them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to, the, to you, they will ask me, What is his name? Then what should I tell him? 
God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. I'm John Baber. Uh, We are, my wife and I, Marianne, and our son Jackie, we're members of the church, and I am the RUF campus minister, I won't do the full spiel, but RUF campus minister at UNC Charlotte, which basically means I'm a college pastor who works at UNC Charlotte. Yay, Yay. that's right, that's right, love that. Um, So today, you saw our text in Exodus, Um, I'm going to bring you, this is, we're this semester in RUF at UNC Charlotte, we're going through the book of Exodus. And so this is actually kind of a message I took from a couple months ago that we did. So we start with Exodus 1 and Exodus 2. Um, I'm going to move this. I feel like people normally do that. It feels in the way. Uh, appreciate it. Um, where was I? Um, so whenever I get to come up here, I do sometimes do a sermon just for the church, and sometimes this is one from our RUF, which is, kind of hopefully to give y'all a picture of a little bit of what I'm, we're talking about to students. Um, there's going to be some things that might resonate more with students than with y'all. Y'all are going to find stuff in there, trust me. Um, but to give y'all a little bit of a picture into our ministry um, in RUF at UNC Charlotte as well, into the lives of 18 and 22-year-olds, sometimes 23, 24, 25-year-olds. Um, so again, without the way, I want to give a brief overview of what we're talking about in RUF, kind of because this is, again, the second sermon in a series I'm doing, so I'm going to kind of place it a little bit for you so you have a little bit more context instead of just jumping in. Um, so every Thursday night at 7, we gather with RUF to fellowship with one another, students, to worship God, and hear what he has to say in the Bible. So I lead our worship and bring a sermon every week. Um, and this semester, we're looking at, again, the book of Exodus. And so our group has a lot of new students this year. Praise God. Um, it's a pretty new group in general coming out of COVID. And I wanted to see them take two major themes from the book of Exodus this semester that we're going through, uh, which is this. The first one I wanted them to see is that God cares about our real tangible problems, that he cared about the experience of the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, and he cares about our problems today, even if they might not be that drastic. And two, that he frees the people of Israel, not just to let them figure it out on their own in the wilderness. He doesn't just free them and then say, well, good luck out there. He frees them to establish them as his people, a community built on God. Um, So these are ideas that I want our group, our students, to kind of know and hold for while they're in our RUF group and also as they go on in life beyond college, uh, that God cares about them and he cares about their problems and that he's rescued them And also that he calls them into a community built on him. And so again, today we're picking up, this is the second sermon in this series, um, Exodus 2. And it's the intro of the character of Moses, who many of you probably know. uh, Particularly his interaction, as you saw, with the burning bush. Uh, So at the end of Genesis, again, to give some context to where we are in the story of Exodus here, since I'm kind of jumping up and just doing a totally random passage, um, the end of Genesis, the beginning of Exodus 1, you see this kind of narrative of how 
the Israelites ended up in slavery in Egypt. There's a new pharaoh. They ended up in Egypt, not as slaves, as kind of guests and visitors at first. And then years pass, and there's a new pharaoh ruling in Egypt. And in his fear, he puts the Israelites into slavery. And you see, and this is a whole other sermon, but it's one of my favorite parts of the book of Exodus. Um, as I've learned going through this series, I didn't necessarily know it beforehand. But you see in Exodus 1, uh, the courage of these two midwives, Shifra and Pua, their names. Uh, these are two women who believed in God's power, being greater than Pharaoh's power. Um, and so Exodus 1, what's happening in our story is this new Pharaoh rises up in power, he enslaves the people of Israel, and then the author of Exodus is really intentional. Again, this is another sermon, but just a tease. Maybe I'll do this one next time. Uh, a new Pharaoh rises up in, in Egypt, enslaves the people, and we're not told his name in Exodus 1. And there's a lot of pharaohs throughout history. It'd kind of be helpful to know which one it was. Um, that seems to be intentional by the author, that we not remember the name of this evil pharaoh, this evil leader. However, pharaoh issues a command. This is leading into our story today. A command to have the Israelite midwives kill the boy babies of Israel. If you don't know, midwives are women who help to deliver babies. And we're typically kind of the lowest on the totem pole of cultural value, social relevance at this time in the society. And so the powerful and important Pharaoh tells the midwives to do something to kill these baby boys of Israel. And then it says there's two midwives that defy Pharaoh. And the author of Exodus makes sure that we know their names, Shipra and Pua, because the author of the book wants us to know who the actual important characters are in this story. And that's not the Pharaoh. Again, that's a whole other sermon. But Exodus 1 is a look at how God takes the broken or those who appear worthless, maybe on the outside in the world. And he takes those people and he raises them up and says, you are precious and immeasurably valuable in the economy of God. And so today we get to Exodus 2. Sorry for the long intro, but we get to Exodus 2 and this super important character in the book of Exodus, Moses. If you know much about the Bible or Christianity or Judaism, you've probably at least heard of Moses. And as you can see from our passage today, Moses was by birth. By birth, he was an Israelite or a Hebrew, okay? See, in Exodus 1, one of the things that Pharaoh, king of Egypt, did, again, was to wipe out all the baby boys. So he told everyone, he said, throw all the Israelite baby boys into the river to kill them because he was scared they would rise up against him. And that's where Exodus 2 begins, and we didn't read it because of just limited time. But Exodus 2 picks up with what? An Israelite baby floating down the river. But it wasn't to kill him like the Pharaoh had wanted and demanded. See, when he was a baby, Moses' mom, again, maybe you've seen The Prince of Egypt, great movie. Um, Moses' mom decided to protect him by actually floating him down the river. Because, I mean, if they're supposed to throw all the babies in the river to kill them, where would they not think to look to find a living baby in the river? So Moses' mom sends him floating down the river. She is an Israelite woman. He's Israelite by birth, hoping he's protected and safe. And who finds him? The Pharaoh's daughter finds him. Yeah, we didn't read that part today. Um, and here's the funny part. And this is, you see in the text, uh, when Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, lifts him out of the water, um, as is the case with many ancient names, the name Moses has meaning and significance behind it. 
Um, Exodus 2.10 says that the name Moses translates to, I lifted him out of the water. And so, very obvious explanation there. But it also means that Moses, or Pharaoh's daughter, so the daughter of the person who wanted to kill all the baby boys and said, throw them in the river, the daughter of that man is in a sense memorializing her own audacity, right? She's like, I'm actually going to lift this baby out of the water and call him that because he's not going to be dead in the river. So she's kind of sticking it to her dad and his evil, murderous demands. So this Israelite kid, Moses, he grows up in the house of the Pharaoh, the king of the Egyptians, house of power. And I want to stop to mention something here, and it's the main theme, kind of what we're going to be looking at throughout our text today. And it's one of identity and purpose. See, it stands to reason that Moses, he's growing up in the house of Pharaoh, right? With his adopted mom, Pharaoh's daughter, living in Pharaoh's house. It makes sense that he was probably starting to question who he was, right? Who does he belong to? Who are his people? After college, I interned interned with RUF um, at the University of Oklahoma for two years. And my wife, Marion, and I got to know a girl. She was a freshman when we got there. At the time, her name was Emily. She was a student in Oklahoma. And Emily grew up in a missionary family in Russia, spent most of her life in Russia. Um, So when she was at home in Russia... It was very American. She had a Caucasian, American family. And when she went out, everything was very Russian. And this is similar to my wife, Marianne. If you know her, she was uh, born in Venezuela. She was born Venezuelan. Um, Then grew up in Oklahoma, which is about as far away culturally from from Venezuela as you can get. most people grew up, most, I don't know if I should say this. It's not in my notes, and I haven't asked. Uh, <laughs> most people in Oklahoma, most of the white people in Oklahoma thought she was Native American her whole life, and we call her Pocahontas. She was Hispanic. Um, that's what she grew up in. But so in her house, they spoke full Spanish. It was very Venezuelan. They ate Venezuelan food. And then she steps outside the door, and it's the very center of America, Oklahoma. And so kind of like Emily, our friend Emily at Oklahoma and Marianne, they both grew up in a house where things were a certain way and they'd step out the door and things were very different. Growing up between two cultures, right? I know some of y'all in this room may have experienced that as well. Um, In various ways, you know, Marianne still considers herself like that American culture shaped her too, as did the Venezuelan culture, you know? She kind of has these two identities she's wrestling with. And I don't want to speak for them, Um, But I struggle to imagine what it's like since I didn't grow up with that reality. But I know that growing up between multiple cultures, multiple identities, things shaping you, pulling at you, uh, that can cause a lot of stress and anxiety of these questions. Who am I? What culture do I belong to? Who are my people? And I have to imagine that's how it felt for Moses. Born an Israelite, growing up among the Egyptians. And then there's a twist for him of he born, he was born in this group of people that was being oppressed by other people, and then he grew up in the house of the enslavers, the oppressors, who were actively oppressing the people who were his genetic heritage, the Israelites. 
So I imagine he also had this pull and tug inside. Who am I? Who do I belong to? Who are my people? And these aren't easy questions to answer really for even a lot of us who may not even grow up in that, that feeling of the two cultures. Um, these questions carry a lot of baggage and weight, a lot of implications we can feel. Especially in modern culture, the idea of identity often carries with it like a sense of purpose in the way we talk about identity today. Like who you are determines what you do, what you're about. And really how we talk about identity, purpose, all this stuff, it's kind of sh- over history it kind of shifts what exactly that means. Um, today in our present culture, 21st century Western world, I would argue that the connection between our identity driving our purpose and purpose driving identity and vice versa, it's pretty strong. Um, and I think you can see it most clearly in a lot of us that live here in just America today. Um, we see a lot of that in our school and work. We find a lot of identity there, right? So in 1930, there was an economist named John Maynard Keynes. Keynes? He wrote an article, 1930, and he said, by the 21st century, America will have a 15-hour work week. This is a trained professional economist, less than 100 years ago, looking at the lay of the land and making a prediction. Almost 100 years ago, he thought, for sure, we'll be at 15-hour work week. Why wouldn't we? And then in 1957, the New York Times predicted that by the 21st century, they said we would be working so much less that our identity wouldn't be defined by our jobs, but by our hobbies and our family life. There's an article in The Atlantic in 2019 that kind of covered these predictions, looked at some of them, saw what they got right, what they got wrong. Um, And you don't need me to tell you. uh, (laughs) A little off. Um, What went wrong? The author of the article writes, he says this, The economists of the early 20th century didn't foresee that work might evolve in Western culture, from a means of material production to a means of identity production. They failed to anticipate that for the poor and the middle class, work would remain a necessity, and for the college-educated, edu- it would morph into a kind of religion, promising identity, transcendence, and community. So all of us, somewhere in, we have to work from necessity, and then also it's just where we find our being and our people sometimes. For many of our students at UNC Charlotte, uh, And there's no shame in this. They've done nothing wrong. But for many of them, if someone walks up, and when I first meet them, if someone says, who are you? One of the first things you're going to say is, well, I'm a student at UNC Charlotte studying computer engineering or whatever. I mean, for me, if someone says, who are you? One of the first things I'm going to say is, I'm a pastor that works with college students. No matter where you fall on the socioeconomic spectrum, To some degree or another, you probably tie up your identity with your work. Who we are and our purpose, what are we doing? We tie that up with our careers or our schooling, if we're in school. Again, that's not inherently like bad or wrong, uh, but it begs the question, if not our career or our school, what really is our identity and our purpose? Who are we then? So I want you to think about those things, those questions, have them going in your mind, identity, purpose, and think about Moses' identity and purpose as I run through more of a summary of kind of the passage today. So Moses grows up, he's born an Israelite, grows up the house of Pharaoh, house of Egypt, 
um, an Israelite by birth, raised by the Egyptians. And then we see what happens next. And this is um, where we picked up today. He goes out to see what the passage calls his people. He goes out to see his people, the the Hebrews, the Israelites. It says he goes out to see his people, to see them at work as slaves in Egypt. And he sees an Egyptian slaver beating a Hebrew slave, and so Moses just straight up kills the slaver. His identity as an Israelite, right, his people, and his inherent purpose and desire to protect and stand up for his people was so strong that it took over and he killed an Egyptian. And I don't want to brush over that, but I want to see the next little paragraph in particular. So he, so Moses kills an Egyptian, standing up for his people, Israel. He's kind of publicly declaring, right? No, these are my people, not the house I grew up in. I'm an Israelite. I'll kill for them. And then what do we see? The next day, he goes back out. And this time, he sees two Israelites fighting. And he's like, wait, why are y'all fighting? We're on the same team. What are y'all doing? We shouldn't be fighting with one another. We're not the enemy. And look at what they say. One of the Israelites turns to him and says, who appointed you to be our prince and judge? Are you going to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? So again, Moses, the day before, stood up for the Israelites, killed for them, publicly identified and kind of declared in a sense that he was one of them. And the next day he goes to an Israelite and like, wait, we don't know you. You're not one of us. Stay in your lane. We don't know you. What are you doing? So Moses has a crisis. Clearly, there's word is spreading that he's killed an Egyptian. He's betrayed his Egyptian heritage and upbringing and publicly sided with the Israelites. And now he turns to the Israelites like, we don't know you either. You're not one of us. Moses basically realizes, oh no, I just killed a guy and now no one wants to claim me. I have no people. Who am I? So we see he goes on the run. He settles in this place called Midian, outside of where he was in Egypt. And here we skip some verses to get, um, where Moses gets to Midian, and he gets married there, kind of settles down a little bit on the run. And then we get to Exodus 3, which is the story of the, the burning bush that we had today. I remember when I was a kid, and I heard, I don't know, it's still like, whenever I try to picture it, I picture, this happens with a lot of texts, especially if you grew up in a Christian house with like the children's Bible and stuff. I still just like picture like a cartoon, a little like flame on a bush. Um, and it kind of takes away like the weirdness of what he actually looked at, like something on fire but wasn't burning. Um, and you've got, then you've got God talking out of it, which is a whole other thing. Um, it's all weird stuff. And Moses has never been more relatable than it says he just like stood there amazed. And then it says, why is that bush burning up? I have to go see it. <laughs> Yeah, same. Um, I would also say that. Um, And then we see this interaction between God and Moses. Moses says he takes off his sandals because he realizes he's walking on holy ground. And then God announces who he is. God says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then God proceeds to explain to Moses how he's, he says, I've heard the cry of my people the Israelites, who are enslaved in Egypt. And he fills Moses in on his plan to free his people. And then God says the thing to Moses that Moses wasn't ready for. Chapter 3, verse 10, God says, Now go, Moses, for I'm sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel 
out of Egypt. Well, I just saw this cool burning bush. I, just, <laughs> I didn't know what I was signing up for when I walked over here. Um, and what does Moses say? He finally says it out loud. He finally says, says the question we know has been eating away at him the whole time. Moses says to God, who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? Moses has grown up between these two identities, these two cultures. And then he'd seemingly again stuck up for his Israel heritage, yet was still rejected by his people, the Israelites. So being a man without a people, without much of a home, Someone who doesn't feel like he belongs anywhere. Someone without a sense of identity or a sense of purpose, he goes out on the run. And it says, again, he settles down in Midian, a new place, a place where there's no history of his past to haunt him, where he no longer feels the pressure to answer the question, who am I? He can just kind of go off the grid, gets married, settles down in a new place. And here comes pesky God, right? Commissioning Moses, giving Moses an identity and direction and purpose, saying, no, 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 here's who you are, and here's what you're going to do. And Moses, who's buried this question for years, right, and years, he's gotten married, he started a new life, he thought he'd left that part of his life behind, and he finally has to wrestle with it again. Who am I? And then God says to take on this massive responsibility, to lead an entire nation out of slavery, a mission that would expect, obviously, huge, violent opposition from Egypt and the Pharaoh. And Moses says, who am I to do this? What have I done right? And what does God say in response to Moses' question? He says, I'll be with you. That's it. That's the comfort. That's the comfort God's offering him. Just, hey, don't worry, I'll be with you. You're fine. And look, it's not a bad offer. Again, no matter how much you question the power of God or something, he is still talking to a burning bush that's not burning up with a voice coming out of it. Um, there's something going on here, some kind of power that might be trustworthy. But even seeing this thing happening in front of him, we can hardly imagine, that we can hardly imagine, it's not enough to give Moses the comfort that he's looking for, right? The comfort that he needs to say, I'm going to be safe to lead a whole nation out of slavery. And he starts, again, we didn't read it all today, but Moses starts on this list of like objections to God, where he's kind of like, well, what about this? What about that? Um, he says, who am I? He asks God. And then he says, and for that matter, who are you? <clears throat> and he tells God, what if the people don't believe me? And Moses says, well, I'm clumsy mouth. I'm not good with my words. To which I love God's response. Moses is like, I, I can't speak well. How am I going to do anything? I can't even talk right. And then God, God's response is, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides if people get to talk or not? Like, next question. Easy. Come on. Um, over and over again, Moses is saying, not me. I can't do this. No, 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 no. What about this problem or this problem? Have you thought about this, God? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about this? On and on and on. So we have to ask, like, what's the deal, Moses? Can't you just trust God? It's so easy, right? <laughs> just do what he says. Because his mission is dangerous and it's terrifying. And because Moses has no belief in himself, he has no confidence, no identity, no sense of purpose, no trust in God. Again, he settled into this place outside of town. 
And he's just like, I got married, I settled down, I just want to chill and do my thing and not think about any of this. I don't want to think about who I am. I don't want to deal with these questions of identity, of purpose, of mission, anything like that. Just let me do my thing. I'm not good enough to even do anything else, right? I'm not worthy of anything else. I have no people, no belonging. Who am I to consider freeing an entire nation out of slavery? Now, I want us to stop for a second. Have you, in some sense, ever felt like this, like Moses? Maybe you feel like Moses right now. Um, I've met with a lot of students in like one-on-one meetings or coffee or lunch um, over the years. I've gotten to hear from a lot of different college students about their lives and their struggles. And the amount of people who feel like Moses does, asking God, who even am I? How am I supposed to do any of this? Like for some of our students at UNC Charlotte, uh, some of them are there at UNCC. They chose to go there simply because they couldn't afford to go somewhere else that they wanted to go. Maybe they couldn't get in somewhere else. Maybe they're at UNCC because of family pressure. I know some students who are there because they're like, I'm the hope of my family, so that's why I'm here. Um, Because I have to go to school and make something of myself. Maybe it's societal pressure. Maybe they're just like, well, no, you graduate and you go to school, and this one seems fine enough. Then you get a career. Some of them are content with being a student, but they keep changing majors because they're not sure which one fits them. Like, what am I supposed to do? I don't know. I don't really like this. I don't really like this. I don't know. And maybe none of that's true for them, and some of our students are just happy to be there and happy with being a student and their future career plans. And even those students will come to me and be like, there's got to be more than just being a future member of the workforce. College, for a lot of, for a lot of people, is a time of self-discovery. Uh, so a lot of people are trying to figure out who they are and who they belong to, right? And then we have social media doing its thing, kind of like pushing on us to post about things where we have to constantly let everyone know, no, here's who I am, here's who I am, here's who I am. It's kind of like constantly trying to pull that out of us to express to everyone who we are. Who am I? Who are my people? What am I doing here? And so how does God answer Moses when he asks these questions? He says, I'm with you. Where you go, I'll go. And there's something, this might be my favorite part of the whole text. There's something so simple yet so beautiful about this interaction. Uh, It's at the beginning of chapter 4. It says this, uh, Moses protested again. What if they don't believe me or listen to me, God? What if they say, the Lord never appeared to you? Then the Lord asked them, what's in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw down the staff, and it turned into a snake. And Moses jumped back. I love that part. It's easy to skip over. Uh, Moses is telling God, all right, okay, fine. You'll be with me. Whatever that means, you'll be with me. But no one's going to believe me that you're with me. He's asking God for God to give, him, give me something to show people. Give me some kind of thing, like, can like an angel go in with me? That'd be cool. Or like a glowing crown, so people will trust me, respect me. Or, you're doing this burning bush thing here, can we just do one of these in Egypt? Give me something, then they'll believe me. Something magical, something divine. Maybe they'll believe me, because they just look at me and they hear my stutter and my voice. And they see me holding a shepherd's staff. Like I'm just some random shepherd? No one's going to believe me. I'm a nobody. 
And what does God say? He says, what's in your hand? Oh, staff? Yeah, let's just use that. That'll show him. See, God doesn't give Moses some majestic item, some angel, or something to approve it. He says, take what you've got, Moses. You're fine. You're good enough. Why are you good enough? Because I'll be with you. You're enough. You don't need anything else. Just be yourself, and I'll be with you, and that's all we need. Just take that boring staff with you. So you see what's happening in the story. Moses, he's caught between worlds, caught between cultures, feeling alone, no identity, no purpose, no people, no confidence. And how does God reach out to him in this moment? Where does God meet Moses? In all of it, he says, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm going to give you a purpose to lead my people out of slavery. And you're not going to need anything else to do it. You're not going to need to improve yourself to do it. Just be yourself, and I'll be with you, and that's going to be enough. That's who you are. You want to know who you are? You're one of my people. That's your identity. Who is Moses? He's a child of God. Who are his people? God's people. What's his purpose? His purpose is God's purpose. So when we question who we are or why we are or what we're supposed to be doing, uh, we have to stop looking inside ourselves, trying to find some hidden purpose or meaning, or maybe looking outside to others to tell us what to do and what to be. Because our identity, our purpose is found in God telling us who we are. We're his children. And we belong to him and his people, sharing his purpose. We see the story of Moses and how he's uncertain of who he is or if he's the right person for the job that God's giving him. And God responds to all of his questions and doubts by saying, here's who I am, just so you know, I'm God. And here's who you are, you're one of my people. You're with me. And what that means is you're going to be okay. It reminds me of this concept, this thing in the Bible called adoption in New Testament. Uh, in the book of Galatians, Paul writes this, but when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we're his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you're no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you're his child, God has made you his heir. Paul is telling us who God says we are, his children. So now we have a security and a safety that we can't find anywhere else. In the words of, uh, I like the way Esau Macaulay says, talks about adoption. He says, this place as sons and daughters in God's kingdom trumps any attempt by lesser kingdoms to make us second-class citizens. We are God's children. And I know this parental language, especially in talking to college students, comes up a lot. Parental language, thinking about your parents' relationship with your Father can dig up a lot of stuff for us. It does for me. Um, but I want you to see that this Father, God, he won't leave us, betray us, be too busy for us, choose another over us. None of that. He's a Father who wants us to be in his family. And he says throughout the Bible over and over again, that he says, I will be with you, and therefore you can rest, because I'm not going to leave you. There's comfort here. No one else can take that away from you. So let me tie all this together. Oh, we read the story of Moses, his upbringing, his search for identity and purpose, all leading up to God calling out to him in the burning bush. And we read this story, I want us to see how God interacts with and meets us in our lives and stories today. So the end of Exodus chapter 2 says, 
Years passed, and the king of Egypt died. The Israelites continued to groan under their burden of slavery. They cried out for help, and their cry rose up to God. God down on the people of groaning. He remembered his covenant promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he looked down on the people of Israel, and he knew it was time to act. We live in a world that inherently brings pain and suffering and hardships. No matter how much money you have, how smart you are, how great your life's going, there's going to be hard times. And I don't want to, again, I don't want to compare our suffering to the struggle of the Israelites living in slavery. I don't want to compare anyone's suffering, but I do want us to see that the pain in your story and the pain in my story allows us to cry out to God. And that when we do, he hears us and he acts. And when we cry out and he acts, it doesn't always mean like a literal, like he literally pulled the Israelites out of Egypt. It doesn't always mean we're going to immediately see our painful circumstance go away. Like we're going to see God do for the Israelites throughout the rest of Exodus. But it does mean that we can trust he has already acted. His son Jesus um, meets us in our search for identity. In our search for belonging and purpose. In the same way that he spoke to Moses, God's telling us, you don't know why all this is happening. You don't know what you're supposed to be doing. You don't know who you're supposed to be. Well, here's who you are, Moses. You're one of my people. You're a child of God who's been adopted into my family. And what that means is that I'm going to be with you forever. You don't need anything else. You don't need a magic wand or a burning bush or anything like that. You've got a shepherd's staff? Cool, use that. Come as you are, struggling with your words and all. You're my child. That's who you are. So as we go out here today, um, go about our lives, go about our week, I want us to ask ourselves, who am I and what am I doing here? I want us to consider if the idea of a God who's all-powerful and all-loving is someone that we'd be interested in answering that question for us. If rather than um, the idea of a loving father, God, is being scary or weird or unfair or anything like that, like our worldly experience of fathers can be, um, if the idea of being adopted by the loving father of the Bible who will go with us and never leave us, is something that could actually bring us comfort. More comfort than our own constant search for belonging and identity. Uh, so when we leave here today, considering what that means for your life, your own personal search for identity and purpose, and if that could actually be found in God and being a member of his family. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for these people, um, this church, and thank you for telling us who we are, that we are yours, and that that's enough. Um, we don't have to fix everything. We don't have to um, totally change everything about ourselves to be good enough for you, um, but that you meet us where we are. Um, and we be with us the rest of this morning as we take this meal, your supper. And be with your people as we go out here today. In your name I pray. Amen.